Welcome to the Tennis Addict Podcast, the podcast for tennis fans by tennis fans. Listen as the hosts break down the latest news and tournament results from around the tennis world. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced early each week, so feel free to add us to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The links will be in the show notes. Here are your hosts, Mike, Eric, and Michael. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and with me are my co-host, Eric and Michael. Hello. Hello, everybody. All right. So we have uh, just witnessed the end of the Australian Open today. Uh, last match was played, the men's final, and so we're gonna uh, we're gonna briefly uh, go back and uh, look at uh, a few of the matches that have led up to uh, the final uh, yesterday and the final today. But mostly, it's going to be about the finals because hey, that's what's important, right? Uh, but we'll start out with the news first off in set <coughs> one, and this is pretty simple. <laughs> On both the ATP and the WTA side. Um, on the ATP side, Novak Djokovic wins his seventh Australian Open title and his 15th overall. Mm-hmm. And then on the WTA side, of course, Naomi Osaka wins her first Australian Open title and her second slam overall. And also that's the that would be the second consecutive, given the fact that she won the US Open last year. I think year. that's the biggest part of that, is that she won a consecutive slam. Yeah, which hadn't been done since Serena and I believe, was it uh, 15 and 16? I think she won. Something like that. Yeah. And then previous to Serena doing it, I think it was like 2010 or 11 or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was a long time back if it wasn't Serena. Like if you take Serena out of the equation, it's been a long time since someone has done back-to-back. I want to say um, – I don't remember the statistic. I know Kim Kleisters did it when she had her comeback. She won U.S. Open and Australia back-to-back, but I don't remember exactly which year that was right off the top of my head. It was around that time, I want to say, 2010, Somewhere I around think. there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So well, – you're, um, you're, you're missing just a couple other things. So you had uh, <clears throat> in the news <clears throat> on the men's side, you had Herbert and Mahout win the career oh, grand slam. For that's the true. That is yep, true. I was going to bring yeah. that up later in the – that'd be well, good that's a good I'm, part I'm, to put I'm, it I'm in there too and then you had the hometown hometown girl stozer oh uh, and finally Zhang. winning a slam in australia yeah yep getting women's doubles and <laughs> i honestly don't know who won the mixed doubles to be honest but uh, i'll figure that out and we'll say that later but yeah just bring up that the doubles um two interesting things a homegrown and a career golden a golden slam a career grand slam for uh her bear and mahout so congrats to them as well which yep. is a big deal because for those two, they haven't paired all the time. You know, most of their career, I don't think they actually did pair, did they? No, no I, I don't think, think that so. Was... I mean, the last few years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, like that's that's impressive that those two, in in a short time, to be able to pick up all four slams, is is impressive. Um. <clears throat> all right. So let's uh, let's go here and let's take a look at some of the notable things that, that happened during the week. Uh, the first thing I want to start out with, and I didn't put it in the notes, was the fact that Alexander Zverev lost, and he lost tamely 
to Milos Raonic. Now, guess what? Alexander Zverev is back in my doghouse. Yeah, well, no, and I, I totally understand, and I agree. I mean, losing six one six one seven uh, seven six is not uh, a very good scoreline at all. And he couldn't find the court. Yeah, against Raonic in the first two sets. Yeah, definitely. I actually liken it very much to the matchup with Nadal and Burdich. Burdich mm-hmm. couldn't find the court in the first two sets. And then both of them kind of rallied for at least a good showing in the third, getting to tie breaks. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Eric, uh, what do you have? Do you have anything you want to add uh, about Zverev and his uh, surprising loss, or at least surprising in the way he lost? Mm-hmm. If if he wants people to look at him as being the next next gen big thing, um, he needs to not turn into a Dimitrov, because if you to put a side by side comparison of those two, they're following he's following Dimitrov a bit on having the ability to do things and not fulfilling them, and uh, it's it's. He's going to start losing because, I mean, not that it matters a whole lot, but when you have people believe in you and fans, I mean, it give, that's a, it's confidence too. It's not just confidence in your game, but when everybody believes in you, that's a good thing. When nobody expects you to win, it's just that extra, that little bit extra, then you got to dig deeper yourself, you know, to, to beat the other guy on the other side of the net if nobody believes you're going to win. And it's starting to be that way. It's starting to be like, all right, he can get, he can get, uh, you know, he can get going, he can, you know, beat some good guys in, in a couple of Master Series. But basically, anytime he comes to a Grand Slam where you really need to, to play your best, that's what, that's what the greats do. The greats play okay and they win tournaments and Master Series and whatnot. Great. But where they shine is where it matters the most, which is the Grand Slams. And it feels like Zverev um, shines the least in a Grand Slam. Like you may have had one good run, but that's about it. I I agree with you, Eric. And and to be honest, in my personal opinion, especially with this tournament and the way that this tournament, um, you know, panned out, I almost feel like Zverev takes a step back here. We think about all the other next gen guys with him, uh, TFO and Tsitsipas getting to the quarters and semis respectively. Um, You had Medvedev uh, getting to the fourth round. Uh, you had a lot of guys get out of the initial rounds of the next-gen guys. They got to the third, fourth, quarters, semis. Those guys made those runs. I just feel like at this point with Zverev, I've already been taking that step to get to the point where he's going to be an impact at slams. I almost feel like this is a step back, losing that bad to Raonic. Now, don't get me wrong. Eric, I think you'd agree, and, and Mike, you might as well. I feel like Raonic played unbelievably well in that match. I don't want to discredit Raonic there. He played really well and played really well in this tournament. Um, but I feel like with the success of all the other next-gen guys, I feel like it's a little bit of a step back for Severov here, especially with, like you said, Eric, the expectations that he honestly was expected to be semifinals or nothing here, really. Yeah. At that, least in my opinion. I think that um, with Zavera, I think there's a, a couple things. First off, I, I believe there's a sense of entitlement to Zverev because he has experienced such a meteoric rise up through the rankings over the last few years, and he's won you know some big titles. And I, I think part of it is he's begun to believe the hype, and that he's oh, he started that to, hype. he's starting he's been drinking the Kool Aid basically for probably the last year, 
specifically. Come on, give us one more pun, Mike. One yeah, more. I know, I know, right? And and <laughs> but I think it's true. And and now onto his game, I think uh, his forehand is his, without a doubt, his biggest weakness is with his game. We know his backhand's really good, and you know his movement is is good for someone as big as and tall as he is, but. When he can watch- also lose rhythm on his serve very easily as well, where he'll struggle to put balls in the court literally. Yeah, I mean he did that against Raonic, but I think that he has that tendency that if he's not feeling it, you know, quote unquote, I, that, that his serve can be very off as well. Right, but I think his forehand – I mean you're right with his, with his serve. He can lose rhythm, but his forehand is is so weak. For somebody his, his size uh, – he should be able to flatten that forehand out without any trouble. And the fact that that isn't a weapon right now, he has way too much spin on that forehand. It has oftentimes very little penetration in the court. Um, Guys, who's coaching him? Larry Stefanke? <laughs> right, right. Because you're thinking, oh, Roddick. It's the Roddick. It's the Larry Stefanke Roddick effect. Go, go ahead, Mike. No, and I just – I think that's a big thing that he has to fix because – uh, right now, that is turning out to be a major liability in rallies. Um, so that's something that we need to think about. Uh, moving on here, uh, Kini Shikori had a five setter against Pablo Karina Busta. Who can Kini Shikori have a five setter against Mike? Huh? I think is a better question. Djokovic. Right, right. Yeah, Djokovic. Um, this match was notable for a number of reasons. First off, Busta was up. Two sets to, to zero at that point. And uh, Nishikori came back, but Busta had so many opportunities to put this match away. And then we got to what is now uh, an infamous uh, late stages of a match. And there was a, a meltdown on court that I think we can all agree it was, was epic. And to be fair, I think the wrong call was made by the umpire. I think that mat, that point should have been uh, replayed. replayed. And yeah, I, I think everybody who has seen that. I disagree with you both. A bit. I only disagree with you for the fact that regardless of that call, there was no way Booster was going to get to that next ball. There was no way. But no the moment, way whatsoever. But, but here's the thing. The that moment that call was made, Booster had to start to let up because the call was made. You know, My and point then is the though, Nisha Corey was hitting the ball basically as the call was being made. I've seen it a few times. I thought the call came, you know, a second. They always prior. replay that, right? When it's that close, when right. it, when it's affecting the person, the next person. It, we've seen them do it where it. I know, it and I and I agree with you before. both. That normally, that is the the circumstance. I agree. I agree, but I think I, that I mean I understand why Busta was upset because ninety nine point nine percent of the time you automatically replay the point. No, that's, because that's what people have come to expect. That's why people stop playing. I understand that. And I understand that. The meltdown, though, what I'm looking more... at, if if I can give a clear description as to why the umpire called it that way, it's because when Nishikori hit the ball, where he was when the call was made, and where Booster was when the call was made, I don't think Booster was getting to that ball anyway. I don't think there was any possible way he could have made a play on that ball. Right. I suppose. My personal but... opinion, and that's the only reason that I can see the umpire making the call that way. Justifiably, I understand why you guys are making your judgment as well, and that it's just the way that it's always done. So why isn't it that way? Yeah. 
but I think also a lot of that it's factored into that moment is just Booster's inability to put this match away, which he had he should have done a long time ago. Uh, Agreed. Even Agreed. That, he totally fell apart after yeah. it, which is understandable too. Yeah. Um. All right. So uh, let let's move on a, a bit here to the women's side. Uh, there was a couple big matches. Obviously, Serena Williams taking out Simona Halep. Uh, Halep did not start out well in this match. Uh, hence the six-one score line, and then it she turned into a little bit of a war. Right, she transformed into the Halep that we know. And then the third set, uh, I believe she was broken uh, fairly early on. I want to say it was something like uh, two all or something, and she was broken. And then uh, after that, Serena kind of just coasted to the finish line. So, uh, you know, but that's a battle between two heavyweights. Um, the bigger match, of course, is Pliskova, Karolina Pliskova, defeating Serena Williams. So this match is notable because – Serena was up 5-1. And I was watching this match and there was there was a point in uh in the match it was late stages it was match point actually. And Pliskova hit behind Serena and she planted her foot but she twisted her ankle to try to go back to get to that ball and it was awkward it did not look good. She twisted, you know, her ankle, something there like that. And from that point on, she was in, in enough discomfort, at least, that it affected her game significantly. Uh, she couldn't, uh, push off on her foot, uh, very well, which meant she couldn't get much on her serve, even if she, if she got a first serve in, which was rarely after that. And then her, her rallies were, she was out of them most of the time. If Pliskova got her on the run, the point was over. So, this is a match that was won, I think we can all agree, part mostly because Serena was injured. I mean, Serena doesn't get injured. This match is over. There's just – I hate to say it, but there's almost no way in which I could conceive of the possibility that Pliskova would have come back if it wasn't for an injured Serena. But also credit Pliskova for never giving up either. But I, yeah, but I think this is like a 99% Serena got hurt 1%. Pushkova, you know, kept fighting. What do you guys think about the outcome for this match? I mean, myself, um, just from the outset of, of after the match, things that I saw, things that were talked about and everything else, I, I, I do mostly agree with you in that the, the injury obviously is the major factor in this. Um, I agree with you as well that, that Pliskova obviously didn't give up at that point. Um, I, I, I found it interesting that, that in the post-match, Serena pretty much said, yeah, I hurt my ankle, but she played nearly perfectly after I got hurt. I, I the, thing, the only reason that I don't totally throw in the towel on Serena there is you guys got to remember she had three more match points after that. Yeah, she did. While yeah. injured. Yeah. So she still had to have been playing pretty well against a top player as well in Pliskova that that was obviously was was playing well in that matchup. So <clears throat> I I got to give a little bit of a nod more to Pliskova here than that. Now I agree with you if that doesn't happen then yes there's a very very good likelihood that Serena just closes the match out and it's over. But yeah, I only yeah. don't give it 100% because of the fact that Serena had opportunities 
past that point, multiple opportunities past that point. And in my honest opinion, I'm thinking if she had multiple more, uh, you know, chances, I feel like this match, Serena should have closed this match out even at that point. Um, obviously, I don't think she was 100% moving, but I felt she was still moving pretty well. Maybe definitely not at 100%, but still moving well, still hitting well around the court. I definitely agree with you, Mike. There was a little bit of loss in her serve pace there as she wasn't able to go for it as much. Uh, but I still think she was very game, and I still think she sort of won this match. Uh, I really credit Plushkiva that she did stick with it, especially in that she had to save multiple match points, not just to that one point. Um, you know, if it's if it's you save one match point and you turn it around, it's like that was a really good thing. But she saved four, which is unbelievable um, against someone like Serena, even not at one hundred percent. Eric, I'm sure you have a few thoughts as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 100% because of the ankle twist, and I'll tell you why. So Pliskova even herself said it. She was done mentally throwing the towel. Um, you witness your opponent twist an ankle. All of a sudden, everything changes. Doesn't matter if it's match point or not. Wounded animal. And Pliskova's, you know, been through a lot and saw it. Okay, so uh, all of a sudden she's like, I have a chance. You don't know how bad it is, granted. Serena tried to shake it off, um, make it not seem like it it was necessarily as bad. And it wasn't the worst because she wasn't, you know, hobbled crazily, but she was definitely hobbled. Uh, The fact that she got a few more match points is not credit to Pliskova. It's credit to her still trying, but it just wasn't good enough. If she didn't twist her ankle, Pliskova would have been sent home. 100% without a doubt, because she said herself, up until the ankle twist, I'd basically given up. Okay, so she was still giving up on that last point as well, too. Just happened to play a good point, Serena twists her ankle, and just couldn't recover from it. Yeah, she had herself a couple more chances, but that's that's worse. Pliskova still gave up a couple more, you know, match points while Serena was hobbled. She was able to fend them off, save them, and at that point she started to steamroll, confidence crazy she knows her opponent's injured starts playing to it i mean serena double faulted a couple of times how many times after she twisted her ankle she threw in yeah. you know a handful of double faults there too um uh, so it's it's in you know i credit both of them i credit serena for not saying after it's done was yeah it's because i twisted my ankle you try to play the, the the injured game she you know was giving credit where credit was due um she didn't call the trainer because I, you know, wouldn't have made much difference anyway. If it's a sprain, you know, the longer you wait, the swelling starts happening pretty immediately. So by all the way, gonna, fans, we we had a huge discussion about yeah. this after it happened. All, all that was going to happen <laughs> was if if she got the trainer out and it took another ten minutes, that her ankle would have been swollen for ten minutes longer. You know, that's so I understood why she didn't bring out the trainer because. It wasn't that bad. It was a slight sprain, but it affects your balance. It affects your rhythm. It affects everything. And, um, you know, thank God did, uh, to Pliskova that it happened when it did. Cause if it would have happened, you know, as Serena was hitting the winner on match point and she twisted her ankle, well, you know, at the end of the day, it, Serena wouldn't have probably beaten Osaka after the ankle twist, regardless if she won or not. And there's probably, no way she was gonna be 100 in two days uh for that match so at the end of the day i think it was what's best 
I mean, it's weird to say, but it's best that she lost. Um, Cause I hate that when someone wins injured, you know, it's kind of like, like I hate to say this, but I hate when Nishikori wins after a few five match, five set matches. Cause I just know he's going to pull out of one of the next ones. It's like, all right, that's great. I mean, you got to play when you win, when you win, you get your points and you get your money, but it sucks for the support because you just know he's going to pull out the next one, you know? Um, so I, in this set situation, I, thought it was the best outcome because at least it made it a match between Osaka uh, and, and Pliskova because it wouldn't have been with Serena. We she either would have withdrawn or it just wouldn't have been pretty. I mean, you saw Pliskova come back 5-1 down and Osaka, arguably better player than Pliskova, it would have been like a 6-0, 6-0 beating with Serena being injured if, if they would have played so. Yeah, that's that's all my thoughts are on that one. Sorry. <laughs> okay, no, no, good thoughts all the way around. I think yeah. it was a good discussion on that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I did not see that interview, Eric, with uh, Pliskova, where she yeah. said she had given up. I I didn't see that. So yeah, she was. Thank you for adding that in. That does, you know, change my thoughts which, a little bit on I, what I said. There. Which I like that too. I mean, I like the the brutal I like honesty. the honesty. I agree. Yeah, and the same thing with with like I said, Serena not saying that she lost because of what she was downplaying it. Cause when you play it up and it's like, yeah, it's cause of my foot, then it takes away the win from the other person and whether it's true or not. Well, and admittedly, I think you would agree even still, she doesn't have to come out and say it. You know, we, yeah. we've all, we, we everybody, all saw everybody, it. Happen. Everybody it's saw not it. like, it's not like she was, she, she was the only one that knew it happened. Everybody did know that it happened. Um, you know, it was replayed 35 times right after it happened before the match was even over. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. Uh, definitely, you know, I was going to say, Mike, are you even still there? No. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> um, all right. So after that is what we're going on in set three, which is going to be the match review. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So Eric, why don't you why don't you take uh take over here? Sure. All right. So we're gonna go the path to the final um with Nadal. Uh Nadal had to go through um three Aussies in a row, which I'm sure <laughs> was not fun. You know, he's usually when he's on the court, he's a favorite for the most part. But when you face the first your, week not. <laughs> exactly. First week uh goes against James Duckworth, um, who notable here was the last time before Djokovic losing to Djokovic was the last time his serve was broken. He was on a streak of 66 straight service games. Uh, Duckworth had broken him. Uh, so you go see Duckworth, Matthew Ebden, then Alex DiMinor, uh, very promising future for that guy. Uh, then goes against Tomas Burdich, uh, takes out American uh, Francis Tiafo, and then uh, semifinals Stefano Tsitsipas. Um, you know, didn't lose a set against anybody, played extremely well. Um, but in my, in, in my opinion, he played really well because nobody he was playing was playing very well themselves either. Tsitsipas wasn't playing too great. Burdich didn't show up until the third set. Chiafo was out of gas. <laughs> exactly, kind of gas. And I think that hurt him. Because he even made the comment himself about while he was injured and off, he worked on his offense. Didn't really get to practice, okay, and do any match play. So he didn't get to really work on his defense. It didn't help that he didn't play anybody with a, lot of, with a lot of firepower. I mean, CC Poss is one thing, but the CC Poss that 
that beat Federer wasn't the seeds pasta that he ended up playing. So he mm. didn't have his defense game, defense game wasn't sharp. And that's why his butt got handed to him from Djokovic. Plus, let's be honest. And I told Mikey this before this, we started here that it's, it's playing Djokovic the final of the Australian Open is the same toughness as playing Nadal to the final of the French or playing Federer at the final of Wimbledon. Each man's got their, their their home court and that's basically what this is he's got seven australians fed's got what eight eight wimbledons or nine i don't know one of the two and you know nadal's got 11 french open so it was a tall ask of nadal anyway if he'd have played anybody else but djokovic i think he'd have won but yeah he played a djokovic that was on fire so djokovic kind of the same a little bit tougher Kind of uh, goes against Michelle uh, Mitchell Kruger, then plays uh, Joe Willie, which um, I thought was going to be a better match than it was, but goes through Joe Willie. Uh, Denis Shapovalov does take a set uh, off of Djokovic, but see, that was more of a mental lapse on Djokovic than Shapovalov playing exceedingly well. Um, Medvedev, Medvedev gave him a bit of a struggle for two was, sets. That was his best match. That was his toughest match because Medvedev, Medvedev came into Australia on a title. Won a title, so he was playing well, confident, had match playing everything. Uh, he goes against Andy Shikori and gets basically a day of rest. And then he <laughs> goes against uh, Luca Pui and basically gets half a day of rest. Because Pui never Luka, shows up. <laughs> Pui was like Cici Pass. That was neither a horrible one showing them. from Luca Pui. Pui was worse than Cici Pass, but neither one of them really showed up. Um, they both played horribly. And that's why, you know, they gave up five or eight, five or six games total is all the more each one of them got. Um, so that's the path to the final. Now for the championship match, most people already know clearly by now because it's on everywhere. Uh, Djokovic beat Nadal 6-3, 6-2, 6-3. And it was really lopsided. It was, um, it, it was pretty one side for the most part so what did novak do that helped him win okay he was solid from everywhere i mean we're talking over three sets a total of nine unforced errors that's an average of three percent that's the kind of unforced errors you've seen a doll do on clay really tough to beat someone when they're not making any errors he's got 34 winners so that's a crazy unforced errors to winners ratio you're looking at basically a four to one okay his first serve he wins 80 percent of his first serve points, 80-81%. Again, it's tough to beat somebody when they're doing that. Uh, return points, which was the biggest part. And like I said, I'm talking about Nadal's defense, which was terrible. Uh, he wins 31 out of 73, which is 27% of receiving points. So you're going to need a lot of break chances for the most part. He did. He had eight, and he converted five of the eight. Nadal only converted zero of one. Um, for the entire match. So it goes to tell you there that, uh, I mean, Djokovic came out and was just like, he was calm. He was collected. You know, you realize that from the first, the first serve, the first serve was an ace. You know, the second serve and point and third points, he was teeing off on the backhand and was demolishing right to Nadal's forehand. So, I mean, he had a game plan and he executed his game plan. He was calm. He wasn't nervous. No. Nadal was nervous. So what factored into Nadal losing? Everything. I mean, at this point, um, he never seemed in, engaged, not engaged 
emotionally, but he didn't really seem engaged. He felt he looked nervous. You could tell even before they started where he was antsy. Um, I think he had a big, big case of the butterflies. I think he kind of knew. I mean, he's a professional. He's not dumb. He even sent himself after about not getting the match play he needed to work on his defense while he was injured. And you're going to go against Djokovic. I think he knew that it was, you know, probably going to be the biggest ask of his career was to beat Novak today. You know, Novak, who, you know, went through his injury and you saw what happened after his injury. He was six and six by May. He had lost to some people you should have never lost to. Okay, Um, and then he finally gets match play under he has the breakthrough win against adult Wimbledon and that's what sets him apart that gets him back on track and then you've got Djokovic who's been on fire ever since basically besides his what loss at the world tour finals that's just a blip like I said um I didn't want to be right when I said that Novak versus Nadal and Novak winning the finals but I should have put money on it um maybe I'd have won something um but Nadal um what happened is Djokovic break broke down Nadal's forehand Okay, so uh, Nadal has 21 winners against 20 and four stairs. That's a bad ratio against other people. You might make it, but not against Djokovic, who's 34 winners to nine and fours. But here's what Djokovic did. And here's what Rafa couldn't do. Djokovic went directly to Rafa's forehand. Okay, Rafa's used to running around the backhand and hitting a forehand, protecting the right side. So what did Djokovic do? He attacked the left side. There's even an article about this on ATP's website. And it was true. It's what I saw. So he went I, against I, I totally agree, forehand. Eric. That was what surprised me the most was that well, he he's, went he's, at He's done that before, forehand. though. It's not It's not even surprising. He's done it before. I don't know what... Well, I'm just saying the success point. that he had today was just surprising to me that he was able well, to attack the forehand as much as he did with as much success as he did. Well, yeah, because Nadal was not ready for it. Like I said, Nadal's defense, he could not... He could not compete. There's just no way around it. So Djokovic breaks down Nadal's forehand, and then starts to break down the backhand. So then Nadal starts to try to protect his forehand a little bit more so he's not running, hitting running forehands. And then he starts going after the backhand that normally doesn't break down, but in this case it did. So then once that breaks down, then you go after the serve. And that's also what broke down. Nadal only won 51% of his first serve points. I mean, I don't I don't care if it's Djokovic or not. It's not just that it's Djokovic. Okay, mm-hmm. it's it's in his head, yep. and he being the more aggressive. True, but start, you guys do have to admit that Djokovic did return <clears throat> unbelievably well today. Yeah, look, he did. Yeah, he, he did, did return unbelievably well, but the placement wasn't. What happened is I will agree, Eric. He was not hitting his spots. It wasn't hitting the spots, and then Djokovic was just confident. He knew he wasn't going to get broken, so he was teeing off. And Djokovic was his timing was right today. It was an on day, and Definitely. I mean. And, and people look at this better. I look at this and this drubbing the same way I look as, as Nadal's drubbed Djokovic in the past at the French. It's the same thing. It's you played against this guy's best service. You didn't play your A game. They played on the top of theirs. And that's what happened. Yeah, has Djokovic beaten Nadal at the French Open? Yes. Has Nadal beat Djokovic at the Australian Open? Yes, but never at the final. Nadal's never lost final of the French, and Djokovic has never lost the final or semifinal of Australia. So yeah. we're talking about when these guys get to these these parts, the unbelievable confidence that they have. you got to shatter that, and Nadal just wasn't ready. Nadal was ready against everybody else, but just wasn't against Djokovic today. Um. So I watched this match this morning. I got mm-hmm. up, got to work, and uh, I watched it uh, 
pretty much from start to finish. And yeah, I mean, everything that you said is, is correct. Um, Nadal did not look confident today, pretty much from the moment he was broken um, his on his first service game. Um, after that, it all went downhill. Um, you know, one thing I noticed with, with Nadal was some of the tactics that he's used prior in prior wins against Djokovic, uh, even on hard courts, say like at the Australia or at the US Open, um, he did not employ today. So let's, um, let's look at the forehand. All right. So one thing he didn't really do much was hitting down the line in this match. Um, and if he did try to hit down the line, he was hitting to that side of the court without coming even remotely close to, to the line itself. So that's always been a devastating weapon that Nadal has been able to utilize over the last, you know, five, six, seven years of his career because he's learned to take that cross court Djokovic backhand and redirect it down the line. And that's been something that he's done all tournament long. It's been maybe the most devastating weapon of the entire tournament was him using that forehand, which up until today has been absolutely phenomenally ruthless. And True, but people nobody attacked his forehand either. That's that's what threw him off. If I think if he would have played someone who would have given him a tougher match, this is the problem when you sail through a grand slam. And you don't get the, the the tough playing that you need. Everything you don't, you don't have to play into exactly. form. You don't exactly. get to every, play into form. Every, everything worked. He didn't have to try crazy hard. I mean, in what one tie break, maybe something like that. If yeah, the, most like that. most of his sets were three games or less. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. that that hurt him. I'm not I'm not, not trying to defend it because I'm an adult fan, but I just said the same thing if it was Djokovic coming back. That hurt him. He didn't get to play before. He had the abdominal strain, didn't get to play Brisbane, came in the Australian Open with no match play since pulling out of the US Open. Remember this, zero. So A, I got to, because I'm a fan still, but still, I got you got to commend him to have surgeries on something that's not the reason he pulled out of the US Open. And to take time off, come back without a match play and not drop a set. Yeah, he gets beat by Djokovic badly, but it's not in, – in, in the grand scheme of things, what else did we expect? It would have been surprising if he had done that to Djokovic. So I'm not that upset. It sucks. But it's actually one of the best things I think that could have happened. I think it's better to get his butt handed to him. Than it to be like a close loss. Okay. You hand it, you get his butt handed to him. Now he knows what he needs to work on. Glaring errors, lots of stuff. To look at the drawing board. It's like, it's like a football team getting their butt handed to them the first half. They know what they need to do to fix them the second half. Okay. Nadal needs to know what he needs to work on now. All this fun stuff. Djokovic, everything went right for Djokovic. Okay. So Djokovic knew what worked, but Djokovic played at Nadal that was not up to level, like a 70% level Nadal, just wasn't there. So I'm not, this is not, in my opinion, something that's going to carry over the next time they play. Nadal's not going to, this is a type of loss that there's a lot of, not say reasons or excuses, but a lot of things you can't overlook that doesn't hold the same weight. You know, they go play each other at, at Miami or Indian Wells. This isn't going to stick with, with Nadal that he got his butt handed to him by Djokovic. Different circumstances. Like I said, no matches, came in, blah, 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 blah. And these people aren't dumb. They know that. 
It's not like he's going to go, oh, well, you know, he just beat me so bad last time. How am I going to do it this time? That's not how Nadal is. So I think this was a good loss in a way because it's going to motivate Nadal. And I think that's what we need. Well, close loss Nadal doesn't. I don't think that's the same. I don't think it lights the same fire. Well, maybe. Getting embarrassed. He's never been embarrassed like this before. He's never lost a Grand Slam straight sets. He's never not won a set in a Grand Slam final. So while some people are like, oh, this is the end or this or that, it's like you look at all this stuff that happens and you got to go, I'm surprised he made it to the final that easily. Yeah. Was it was it easily? Yeah. But I, you know, I picked it, but I honestly didn't believe myself that he was going to make the final because even I know he didn't have any matches coming in. And, you know, Nadal, Finnegan, he needs court time. He needs play. That didn't happen. So at the yes. end of the day, I don't care if he probably would have had some match play. He probably still wasn't going to beat Djokovic today, even if he did play in Brisbane or whatnot, just because, I mean, Djokovic is on fire. And when Djokovic is on fire, there's very few people that can beat him. It takes someone who's playing out of their mind, and it's not someone like Nadal unless Nadal's playing at 110%. Just because Djokovic knows how to play him. That's what happens when Stan. See, that's why we need Stanimal back. Stanimal's helped us a couple of times, Mike. Okay. <laughs> Whenever it wasn't at all up to snuff, it's been the Stanimal that stepped up and goes, oh, I'll knock him off his perch. But now we don't have Stanimal here. So now we're in some trouble. Well, I just, I think I think that really was most frustrating for me. It was not but seeing, it was. I was, it's yeah. not seeing the fight. I didn't mean to get there was no, I, I agree. There was but no I think f- he didn't hit down the line because he was shocked. He seemed really out of place that Djokovic's backhands were coming with that much pace to his forehand, and he's not used to that that much. He hasn't been used to it since last year, since probably the last time he played Djokovic. Nobody really tries to cream it to Nadal's forehand but Djokovic. So, Mike, Mike let, me, let me throw this in real quick. I, my observation of it in that I feel like this was the first time, and you guys know I'm not a proponent of Nadal, but I have always given him credit as a problem solver. I feel like he didn't have a plan B today. No, there wasn't. There was nothing. I, to I do. felt like he literally, after those first couple games, I agree with both of you. After those first couple games, I, I don't want to say he packed it in, but I almost feel like it was close to that. Yeah, like look, he knew yeah. that he was not going to win today. There was no way. After about four games in, I think he knew at that point. But it it reminded me, uh, and I wrote this in the notes, kind of how Roger was beaten by Nadal at the 2008 Roland Garros. Now it's not the same scoreline, but on no, that but day, there was nothing he was going to do to win that day either, right? Which is what I think you're alluding to, right? And and you know, it was kind of the same thing. It's kind of how I view this. This is Nadal's version of that 2008 Roger Federer annihilation, which is is more or less what it was, and. I like I said, I, I think I was most annoyed and frustrated by the lack of fight, you know, because Nadal's always been a fighter. Like he he doesn't give up. He he'll figure something out in this in in a match. Um, I've seen him get annihilated himself in in a set. I've seen him get destroyed in a set, you know, six zero or six one, and come back win the next set and win the match. Um, you know, where the guy that started out on fire, you know, couldn't couldn't miss even if he tried. And yet, well, I think the difference here too is Mike that Djokovic never dropped his level. We never dropped his level, but I, you know, Nadal. Well, what I'm meaning is, what I'm meaning is, is when other guys have have taken sets off Nadal and, and and made him look bad in a set or whatever, however you want to phrase it, 
And, you know, you've said that Nadal has continued to show that fight and, and keep digging and digging until he could, you know, get a foothold. I feel like in a lot of those instances, though, guys' levels fluctuated. And Nadal's level came up, but everybody else has fluctuated too down. In this instance, I, I honestly feel like it did not matter what Nadal did today. It, it just didn't matter. Djokovic had the answer for everything today. He was playing at way too high of a level for for because I mean I saw instances. I know you guys said that it didn't seem like you know the fight was really there from Nadal. I mean there were many instances where he was trying to fire himself up and 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 he was trying you know he'd make a big shot and you're like all right he made a big shot he gave himself a fist pump you know a, a vamos let's go and it just wasn't there like. Every time Djokovic immediately in the next point just swept a, for, a forehand or a backhand winner and just like ended any momentum just instantly. That's how it felt to me. Wow. That Djokovic just cut off any little bit of momentum that Nadal could start. He would immediately sweep away and all the momentum would swing right back to him again. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, Djokovic played well, obviously, but look, I mean, it, Taking everything else away, though, there was just a level of sloppiness on Nadal's part today. I mean, I'm not even talking about you know Djokovic and how he was playing. I mean, Nadal was flubbing routine returns. Nothing, nothing hard. It wasn't like he was on the stretch to get a return. He was flubbing routine backhands. You know, standing there, not on the stretch, not chasing something down, just in the in the net or or hitting a, a forehand, a standard rally forehand. You know. Uh, a foot and a half out, you know. Okay, it's one thing if you're telling me like Nadal or, or Djokovic's got Nadal on the stretch. He's pushing him, you know, back and forth across the court. Nadal's just, you know, struggling to even get the balls and and return something. Yeah, okay, fine. But what I'm saying is, on top of the fact that Djokovic was playing extremely well today, which was obvious, Nadal was was handing him, you know, bags of points. He was. Essentially, yeah. he was Djokovic played well, but he was aided exponentially by Nadal's extremely low level of play. So while I agree that Djokovic played very well, I don't think Nadal was even at a a regular, even standard level of play for himself. He was just sloppy all around, which is why you know there was twenty eight unforced errors. He was just spraying balls left and right, handing Djokovic games, flubbing returns, hitting off his his racket frame on just standard returns. It was just – it's like when you get up on the wrong side of the bed that day. You feel yeah, slow out in the you court. you can do is right. Yep. And it was just – you know. so it was Djokovic played well. Nadal played like garbage. Well, okay. And I hate to say the, this. Let's, you know, let's be honest. The Djokovic played like a god and it hurts me to say it. But you got to say it. You play like a god. Yeah, he played very well. And Nadal played poorly. But Nadal played also, average, if Nadal, which for him is terrible. If Listen, if the, <laughs> even if Nadal would have played extremely well, he still would I still don't lost. think he would have won. No, he, he would have lost. He still would have lost. Not – I don't – I can't say with, with truth in my heart that he would have – even if he would have been playing really well. Nadal would have – if he would have had – more match play coming in, something to make me feel, um, and would have been tested a bit, played someone tougher, like Fed. I wished he would have played Fed. I really did. That'd have been the best thing, maybe, 
because even if he if he'd have gotten through them, like it would have challenged him something, but it wasn't going to win. So you know this question you post here, um, what do the players go from here? What do they do? Well, Djokovic really just keeps doing what he's doing. He's he's not doing anything wrong. He's now three majors in a row, going for another Nole Slam. Um, you know, going to try. I think to go. those words make you sick to the stomach, don't they? <laughs> At this point, yeah. But, I mean, the, the nice thing is this. Here's why I'm not worried about the French. We've done it before. Djokovic has been on rolls before. But Rafa, the way Rafa's playing, again, coming into Australia with zero matches, steamrolling through everybody, I don't really care. Okay, you can say he didn't have tough competition, but he still played Tsitsipas, Chaffa, who beat Dimitrov, that were downplaying. You know, he played some decent people, but with no match play into straight sets, everybody. And yeah, he ran into Novak. That is great. That's the best, is the best thing that could have happened besides him losing is what he did. Everything he did all week, all two weeks was great. All right, today was a bad day. And like Mike said, it was a bad day. He was going to lose anyway, but it's a bad day. So there's a lot of positives to take here. The way he's being aggressive with the serve and the way his ground strokes are being aggressive and you add that into a clay environment that is scary that's something Djokovic should be scared about because he's not going to play this isn't going to be the same thing if they meet at the French you're not going to have a skittish Nadal you know somebody's not going to be ready he's not going to be able to take the time away from you know on the forehand he can do that Australia it's a fast court okay the ball's fast and you saw Nadal have to lean and have to run for those forehands a lot. It's not going to be the same thing on clay. Nadal can back up. If he wants to play that game to try to hit the Nadal's forehand and try to break it down, it's not going to work as well. Nadal can can create more time to hit that forehand and be more offensive with it instead of well, trying to Well, a different surface, defensive. different tactic. I, I would agree exactly. with you that that would – Djokovic exactly. is not going to so, play him that same way. That would be it's not irresponsible. Gonna work. <laughs> well, it's also not going to work. Right, but exactly. Also, That's why I just – but but also surface, up until no the finals performance, yeah. up until the finals performance, it was this is a fantastic performance by Nadal. All he needs to do is yeah, go back to the drawing board only against Novak. He doesn't need to go back to the drawing board against anybody else. He didn't fail against anybody else. He's got to come up with some tactics, but he's got to work on his defensive game. He's going to have a lot of time to do it. So by the time Roland Garros rolls around, lots of tournaments, as long as he doesn't get injured, so what Nadal needs to do is not get injured. Take the positives away from this and figure out a game plan. He's got a lot of time. It doesn't really matter what he does between now and French. It doesn't even matter if he plays Djokovic. If he does, try some things out. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is if he runs into Novak during the French Open, he's got to have a game plan then. And they're going to be probably seated one and two. So it's probably not going to be at the final. And Nadal is going to be where it's going to be in his court, his home. And he's going to be calm and collected just like Djokovic was. So yeah, I'm just all, – all I'm saying is it would be nice for Nadal to uh, not be skittish on a non-clay surface. Yeah. I think – I mean yeah. it would be nice. But well, what did we expect? I mean anybody besides Roger – that would have been gone against Djokovic would have felt like they're as, I mean, Rogers, the only other person with more than one Australian open. that's still basically playing. Um, you know, nobody else has more than one, I think. Right. Stan, Stan has one. That's it. Yeah. Stan has one. And Murray never got one. Murray got two Wimbledon's in the U S open, right? Correct. Yeah. He, he, he made four finals. 
three or four finals. Yeah, like, yeah. Where so he got yeah. drudged, so yeah, or beaten severely. But admittedly, Murray came into those finals in horrible shape. He was he had played massively long matches to get to those finals and didn't have a whole lot left in the tank in a lot of those instances. It's since what? It's since two thousand and four. There hasn't been anybody other than Nadal, Federer, or Djokovic win the Australian Open, exactly. except for Stan. Stan, sorry, Stan. Stan's one. Yeah, Stan's one. Yeah. So otherwise, it's those three. So okay. So, and, and and I agree with you guys really quickly here. Uh, with you know going forward, I think. To be honest, for me, I think both of them do what they've been doing. I agree with you guys. I don't think Nadal should take a, a, a negative approach to this loss. I don't. I don't think he will. I, I, agree. I don't think he should look negatively upon it. And I think basically both just keep doing what they're doing, because right. in Rafa's case, he just needs to basically keep rolling forward, get to the clay, and do what he does best. And for Djokovic, uh, a question I did want to pose to you both quickly with going forward. Um, is is there a chance, which we talked about last year when Novak won the U.S. Open uh, and Wimbledon back-to-back, we said, does he now build momentum and start going on a tear again? We now yeah. see him win a third slam in the row. Do you guys think that this continues? Yeah. Does he continue on a roll now? Does he just pick up massive amounts of slams over the next two years? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. I see him, unless something drastic happens, I see him... I don't I mean, know he about... seems as focused now as he's ever been. We didn't um, have any of the true lapses like we saw last year where he was losing to people. Don't get me wrong. He's had some lapses within matches, but nothing like crazy. Yeah, I think he's of, getting outside... close to being back to true form at this Out, point. Outside of Roland Garros and then Wimbledon's – well, at the moment, Wimbledon's going to still be his dodgiest besides French. Basically, you're handing US Open and Australian Open every year on a platter. Um, he'll get, he'll I mean, get to twenty. Honest, he'll get to twenty. Or, that, that he'll Novak get to twenty or more by. Is still the number two player on clay. Doesn't matter. He'll, he'll he's gonna get to he's gonna get to twenty slams or more in probably three years. Yeah, I'm yeah. just I'm just saying to you guys. I'm just saying you know obviously on clay other than the so dog, he's, he's the clear he's, number two playing at this level. Well, yeah, on clay. Yeah, well, no, I mean team. I mean, I think Novak playing at this level on confidence would he'll be crush team. team. He'll crush him. He would crush team with this confidence level right now. Yeah, he would. I think he would steamroll him. He could. He could hit through team's power on that surface and, and not get affected the way Nadal can on the surface. Well, we'll see. But regardless, yeah, he's in the transitional period here now. I mean, it, it, I mean, we can't really write off Roger for losing to CT Pass, but. Uh, aside from if Roger still plays Wimbledon and does well, we're, we're on the transition where Nadal fighting through injuries, Roger fighting time, up and comers not yet breaking through. He's but the still sole, being an issue throughout the tournament. He's the sole guy though. Who he, he's the true guy that's that's well, at no, the top that's not unwavered yet. Exactly, he's the sole guy. So it, kind of like in a different context, how Roger benefited from nobody. Uh, four, five, and six, or four, six, and seven, or wherever it was. Djokovic is going to benefit from his competitors now starting Not to having know, anybody to step up. Yeah, Rogers getting older, so it's, it takes a little bit away. He's not the same. And, you know, Nadal, while Nadal still can be dangerous, still going to be the favorite on a, you know, in a French Open final, that's about it. Um, 
So then you've got Djokovic is just being Djokovic is turned into Roger right now. Think of this as think of it. We're in 2004 and Rogers, you know, Djokovic is going to be the favorite in a three out of the four slams. And there's not going to be anybody serious to combat him except for Nadal and not the way Nadal played today. But that's going to be about it. You might have a breakthrough up and comer. I mean, Zverev can. Zverev's beaten Djokovic a couple of times. He's got the ability, but I, it's just but between you, the ears for him at this but point. But again, you, you need him to show up. So, yeah, we're in that transitional period for the next year or two where it's going to be vacuum up as many Grand Slams as you can because it, it's now his time. So. And I mean, if that's the case, if he wins three three per year the next two years, he ties Roger at the end of next year. Being that Roger doesn't win anymore at this point. Yeah. Yep. So that wouldn't surprise me. So anyway, we'll move on to the WTA and let you take it over since you follow the women's side more than either <laughs> of us. Um yes, yeah, so so capping off, obviously in the men's final we see a little bit of a surprise. We don't see as big of a, a matchup as we expect. On the women's side, we usually don't see that many great uh, finals. This time, we actually did. Um, it was a weird we one, We actually though. saw a very good, high-level quality final from the women, which I was ecstatic about. It was it was a good match to see. Um, mm. We'll first go through uh, the road to, uh, for each one of them. Petra Kvitova um, plays Riberakova in the first round, uh, followed by Camila uh, Bagu. Belinda Bencic, still coming back from injury. That was a good run for her. Uh, Anna Samova, the young American who who made a, a splash earlier in the tournament, which we talked about in the last podcast. Uh, she swept her away as though she didn't exist. Um, Ash Barty, who was the home favorite, unfortunately did not play uh, you know, her best there, but admittedly Kvitova was basically rolling through everyone. I do want to bring up the Collins match to you both really quickly. Um, there was a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of goings on, something that's flared back to you guys before with the roofs being closed. Uh, do you both agree that them closing the roof gave the match to Kvitova? Mm, not necessarily. No. It's not uh, the same because Kvitova, I don't think, is the same as Roger Novak, where they've been no, proven- but I only say because Kvitova has had a history of not playing well in the heat, which is why they closed the the, the roof. Well, yeah, but they closed the roof because they hit that index anyway. I know, I know. I'm I'm just throwing it out there. Did, uh, did you it take help? Kvitova as a big swing, and you take out the factors of wind and, and and you know conditions. I'm just throwing it out there to you guys. Just you know, did it did it help? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think I don't think it caused it though. I don't think that was necessarily. I don't know. It's unfortunate. It's the same. I'll put it here. It's the same as how I felt about Djokovic and Nadal last year, where. Um, with them, it should have been done on a circumstance and it shouldn't the next day here. I mean, even if she plays worse in the heat than, than Collins, it's the same as what Djokovic was 10 years ago where he couldn't play in the heat in Australia, you know, before he finally won. Um, it's unfortunate, but it was still the right thing to do. Just oh, because, no, no, no. I mean, that's the rules and that's the way it is. I, I'm just asking but it if helped that factors her. Yeah, in. Because I think it helped her. I can't say it's the cause, but it definitely helped. Mike? It, yeah, I mean, I think it helped, but I agree with Eric. I, it, not the cause, but I think it probably did help. I think the biggest detriment uh, that I saw in that, I think Collins completely got off her game because she made a big deal of it when they closed the roof. And I honestly yeah, feel like momentum, once they yeah. closed the roof, she made a big deal out of it. Like, you know, really, we need to be doing this. And 
I think she totally lost focus at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the only reason I can say that the the roof closure helped Kavitova was because Collins's mindset Collins completely went off. away. And that was really dumb of her because it doesn't. It only takes like five minutes for that roof to close now. See, when they first started them, it was ridiculous. It, it was took like, like half twenty minutes easily. Yeah, it, they put a new gear on that thing, so it that thing literally was closed. And I think one of the matches that I watched throughout the tournament, like they actually minutes. closed the roof while they were playing. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, because it's, it's so like, fast. It's like four or five minutes at most to get that roof closed now. So and that's think, not enough to like yeah. throw somebody off. Oh, and, uh, well, I would agree. I think it just it let it got into Collins's head. I don't she know let why. It, yeah, she let but it. we have to remember, guys. Both we, we all have to remember. This is only her second full year on tour. Yeah. I mean, she's played tennis for years now, but this is only her second second year on tour. This is the kind of focus and losing of not being on tour week in and week out. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get we'll get you know, moving on then. Uh, Naomi Osaka, the other uh, finalist, uh, she played Magna Lynette in the first round, uh, Zendayek in the second round, uh, Sushue in the third round, Sevastova mm-hmm. in the fourth round, Svitolina, who I think you guys would agree really didn't show up in that match, and then the Pushkova no. match, which we all kind of agree. Pushkova probably shouldn't have been there. It should have been Serena. But regardless, we did get a very good matchup between Osaka and Pushkova in that semifinal. Um, so we, we got a little bit of a treat there. Um, did you guys have any thoughts at all on that that road to the final for, for either one? Not really. Not really. I mean, it's just a solid lineup overall, I think, for both players. I think they're roughly, if you look at the players both faced, they're all more or less, it seems, uh, a very similar path in terms of the quality of opponents. I think the number um, one thing that I was shocked about, and I think you guys would agree, um, all four finalists, I'm talking men included, their paths to the finals did not really include any of the top echelon of players uh-uh. nope. in most circumstances. No, uh, I would say Osaka probably faced the best, uh, the best of the top players out of all four finalists. Yeah, I think I you think, would agree. Yeah, and the, with, I guess the very back Sevastova, yeah. Fidelina, and Pliskova, who are all top fifteen players to get to the final, with yeah. Fidelina and Pliskova both being top ten. Other than that, uh, it was pretty as far as seedings go. You know, um, easier roads for all. All. Uh, I'm not no I'm not sure of the words here but for all involved. Yeah. Uh but in the championship match uh we have Naomi Osaka beating Petra Kvitova 765764. Um what did Naomi do to to win the title, get her second in a row? Um served and played very aggressively throughout the match. I think the biggest thing that we want to look at for both is it was first strike tennis from the outset. Whoever was able to make the first big shot usually won the point i think you guys would agree um naomi though on the other hand any time that we got into any type of long rally it was naomi's just through and through uh failed to be in those long rallies failed to be a factor after you got past couple of a couple of shots within those rallies and naomi won most of those um which is you know part of our notes here that we're talking about she basically exploited Petra's movement, which obviously is is her biggest deficit, I guess we would say, in her game is that she obviously doesn't have the movement. Um, and I think, you know, Mike, you had brought up, I think in our previous podcast, that how much better Naomi's movement has gotten over the last year. Um, even Even as well as from the U.S. Open, I think you guys would agree her movement has gotten even better since New York. Yeah, she's worked on it significantly, definitely. Um 
Uh, one thing that she eventually did do, uh, Naomi did take uh, Kvitova's best weapon, which is her lefty serve out wide. Um, I think you guys would agree she did eventually do that by the third set, but the first set and a half, she struggled with it a bit to well, find that timing. But once she found yeah. that timing, that pretty much took Kvitova's best option uh, off the table. Right. Um, she planted herself over there. It's she tried all match long. It just it took a little while for her to get the timing down. And once yeah. she started doing that, it was uh you could tell it was annoying Petra. And Petra's down the T serve is not she's it's not, not very, as effective on, well, on that on the ad side. No, it's, it's just, just she's not very good at that. She, because she does well, the out wide serve. Out wide serve is her best option, and in most cases she can use that out wide serve, even if the player is going to camp on it. She can still use it. Mm-hmm. But Osaka has the ability with the power that she possesses to hit through that shot once she times it, and then hurt Kvitova immediately off the return. Yep. Which ninety nine percent of players cannot do to her out wide serve on the ad side. Yep. Um, so we're talking about you know the fact of that. That's why there was thirty three winners to thirty three errors for Osaka. She did hit a lot of errors early. I think, uh, you know, just kind of getting herself into the match. There was several errors, of course, just trying to time that uh, out wide serve. She hit a lot there. But once she, you know, started getting into it uh, and started timing it, that that kind of went away. I think the biggest thing we would talk about for Osaka, though, is um, you guys would agree she completely collapsed in the second set. Um, Late in that second set, she completely collapsed. She served for the set, was broken at love. And the wheels completely fell off for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. You guys would agree? Yeah. Well, you got to remember she had uh, four match points. It was love 40 on Petra's serve. Right. Well, that's what I meant. Three on on Petra's. Petra held them all, got out of the service game. And then I believe she was broken at love to back that up. Was she not? Yep. She just collapsed. I mean – She completely collapsed. Mentally, you could see that she was anguished. Um. I don't want to say she was on near onset of tears, but it was getting pretty close. No, it, it was pretty close. The emotions were yeah. just pouring out of her at the end of that second set. In fact, she walked off the court uh, after that. She lost that second set, uh, 7-5 to Kvitova. She walked off the court for, I don't know, five minutes, went into the, to the bathroom. And as she was walking off the court, she had a towel over Completely her over head. Completely over her face. Because you, I, you know she was crying at that point because she was so – she should have already had the trophy in her hand. Precisely. At that point. Yep. Um, but again, similar to what we said with Pliskova and Serena, you got to give Kvitova credit. She fought very hard at that point, especially three match points down at that point, you know, down on her own service game. You got to agree, digging very deep to try to get out of that hole yeah. uh, was impressive, which showed Kvitova's fight. She is a Grand Slam champion. We know what she's capable of. Um, and we know where she's come from with, you know, the, the issues that she had off the court, um, you know, last year so, or the year before last. So what did Petra do that factored into the loss? Uh, capitalizing on break opportunities, three of 10 in the match. Um, obviously, Osaka has done very well in starting to protect her serve with the exception of that game getting broken at love. Um, she held her serve pretty well throughout the match um, and protected it pretty well. Uh, I think the big thing there she, uh, for Petra, she stayed mentally tough throughout the, the match. I don't think there was any huge drops in level for Kavita. I think you guys would agree uh, where she – there was no no lapses of concentration or or drop in play. She was always there. 
there were just times that Osaka was able to pull her level just a little bit higher, um, you know, but, but basically didn't have enough in the end. Uh, Kvitova obviously plays a very high-risk game, as does Osaka. 33 winners to 39 errors for Petra, which I think a, a good bit of them came in the third set when I think she knew it was starting to get away from her. Um, in, in that third set, you could see that I think it was at two all, uh, Mike, you might remember at two all, I think it was that Osaka was serving that Petra had an opportunity to break her and Osaka, like just basically closed it out with some aces Uh and you could see a little bit of dejection in Kvitova's eyes or no, no, no. It was after Osaka had broke her. Uh, she had a break chance to get back on serve. Oh, right, right. Um, at three, two. Osaka was serving, and she basically served her way out of the game. And you could see a little bit of dejection from Kvitova after that service game. Like, that was my chance is kind of how I looked at it. You could see that she just – she was a little dejected. Like, that was my opportunity, and I missed it. And I kind of feel like at that point, Osaka did calm down a little bit, I think, once she got out ahead for two – Kvitova at that point, um, well, it was basically well, just serve, to remember. serve, hold, serve, hold, you know. At that Kvitova point. had – it was – Osaka had a triple break point once again on Kvitova's serve in that third set after the break. Yes. And and Kvitova did it again. She, she, she Served found, it out. Yep. She found a way to get uh, a combination of errors, good serving, uh, was able to actually win that. I mean it's the only reason that that – uh, ended up being a closer scoreline in that third set was because she found some way to survive yet again a triple break point game. So, right, which I mean, I think that the biggest thing that we need to look at this was an extremely competitive final, and I think you guys would agree something that, that has been lacking on the women's side for a long time. When was the last time we had a true epic tussle in a final? Last year, the uh, Australian Open. <laughs> last year, well, I mean, yeah, last year, but I mean, consecutively, we usually don't see this. There's usually a lot of very lopsided wins, in, in in finals, and I mean, the women's game is getting better now, but the quality of this match through and through, and the back and forth, I think, made this a very compelling final um, that we've come to expect on the men's side that we really. Haven't always gotten on the women's side, but this time we did. Um, so going forward, obviously this match was – there was more on the line than just the title. Uh, there was the number one player in the world, the number one spot on the line. Naomi Osaka is the number one player in the world. Kind of crazy to say at 20 years old, correct, or 21? She's turned 21, 21 now? 21. 20. 20, that's what I thought. So Naomi now number one in the world at 20 years old. Not something that uh, we've heard of in a while. 21. She's uh, 21. She's 21. Uh, okay. Yeah, she did. Yeah, sorry. It was uh, October. Yeah. I, I think going forward, obviously, she's got to savor this moment. And I think you guys would agree that savoring this moment, I think, is a bigger deal for her now than it was in New York. Obviously, we've talked about it. And we're not going to get into the controversy there. But I think that this is a, a monumental win for her playing a very tough opponent and winning a very tough final. Um, I think that she should truly feel as though she is a true Grand Slam champion and deserves to be number one. And I hope that she embraces that going forward. Uh, any Anything from you guys as far as her outset going forward? Well, I mean, she has to work on some stuff there. She's never been past the third round of the French or Wimbledon. So while, yes, on hard courts, clearly she's going to be a force to reckon with from here on out. Um if she wants to, you know, 
try to start having a long-term haul like Serena, she's going to have to start working on the other surfaces and get her game up to snuff there because, uh, yeah, she just hasn't, you know, she made the third round of both French and Wimbledon last year, uh, Wimbledon 17, French in 16. Uh, so that's it. I mean, she's just going to have to work on the other surfaces. Uh, nothing wrong with being, you know, just a one surface winner, you know, if she keeps winning, but that's what I say she's got to do, you know, to, 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 to be looked at as, you know, great or one of the greatest now it's not just having a couple of grand slam titles you know two three four isn't going to do it you need to have the career grand slam i mean you've got to do the bar is a lot higher now and i think well i think in the women's game now you, you got to look at anybody that can get to double digits at this point yeah yeah and yeah, and i mean not... at this point because serena has won so many most players have not even had the opportunity we've seen uh, several players that have two and three now in this this generation with serena but other than Venus, well, we don't see anyone that has more than five, four, five max. Uh, yeah, I think I think four or five is the max. Other than Venus in this generation, so yeah, I think so. yeah. So I mean, at this point in time, I agree with you, Eric. She's got a lot to work on, Mike. I think you would agree, though, that there's definitely lots of time for Naomi to do that at this point. Yes. Now that she's put herself in the position to do so. Yeah, I mean, look, she's yeah, you're right. She has a lot to work on, but um, I think the bigger thing for her is um, even regardless of surface, she needs to work on becoming more consistent week to week. Um, we've seen this become just an issue in general in the women's game, um, with the exception of maybe Serena um, and Halep, uh, Simona Halep, um, maybe Caroline Wozniacki, uh, not as much anymore, but there was a period of time in her career where she was pretty much getting to the late stages of just about every tournament she was entering. Um, right. But, but I think Osaka does need to work on, you know, you can't just, I mean, hey, if you're going to show up at any point in, in the entire calendar, if you want to just show up for four weeks of the year, if that means you're winning all four slams and you don't pretty much do anything else. You mean eight weeks? Or, yeah, eight weeks, but, but four tournaments, um, then that's fine. And sure, that's great. But if you want to become a really great player and, and you want to have a complete resume, you need to be able to go in, play Indian Wells, at least make the late stages of, of that tournament, and then go into Miami and do the same and make the late stages of that tournament. And then maybe do that a few times on the clay season and just show yourself to be a consistent threat across the entire calendar, not just here and there because you don't because yeah. you can easily become a um garbinia muguruza who is mm -hmm. a, a grand slam champion but at two, the same time, time yes but at the same time you know how often does muguruza show up when it's not in a slam not that often so yeah. you don't want to be got, that yeah because and, and i have the list here so besides serena at 23 you've got venus then at seven is the next active. And then you got Sharapova right. at five. Right. That's who I was thinking had five. Yeah. And then it's three with Kerber and then a bunch of twos and ones. So, I mean, there's only five women in the open era that have double digits. Right. Yep. And that's what I mean. To be able to really be classified in that true great you need to have you know, at least field. seven. You've, you've got to get – well, you've got to get to – I mean I think in this day and age, you, you almost got to – yeah, no, if not, you get past for, five, not, at not this point, women. I think you're going to be. But For the women, you just need seven. 
because seven is Justine Ennen, uh, Google on Collie, Venus, and you know, Billie Jean King at eight, Monica Seles nine. They have Margaret Court at 11, but that's 11 in the open era. And then she has 13 from the previous. And then it jumps to 18 between Everett and Evertilova and 22 for Graf. So the problem with the women's side is you had four women um, when 36, it's like the men's side, 36 uh 60 80 89 grand slams between four <laughs> between four women so uh, right right exactly so you know you talk about the previous generation who basically won everything serena winning everything in this generation so it's been very hard for most of the women to break through and really mm-hmm. have any true success week in and week out uh kind of getting us back on track mike you said about the week to week I think the biggest thing, the perfect example was in the lead up to the Australian Open, her losing in the semifinals two and four in a bad loss there. So that's kind of what I think you're talking about. Just that week in and week out, bad losses that she's taken in matches that she should be winning, I yeah. think is what you were talking well, about. Well, it, it's, it's losing, it's losing early in tournaments. It's, um, uh, it's pulling a Stevens, uh, <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. I mean, look. I mean, look. I Sloane Stevens. No, I, is, I laugh because we used to always say that it's pulling a mall feast, but yeah. now it's pulling a Stevens. Now it's pulling a Stevens because you know that's that's what I'm that's saying. Just the way it's been. It's just you gotta you gotta show up uh, more often than just some big tournaments or, or grand slams. Um, if you're not willing to put in the time and the effort in order to be able to do that, then fine. Hey, that's your career, and if that's what you want to do. I'll criticize you for it. You know, I mean, it's not going to matter to you that I'm criticizing, but that's the thing. You know, I, I want to see consist. Halep is a consistently great player because it's not that often that you see her tumble out of a tournament early, unless it's due to an injury or she's exhausted because she just won two tournaments or, or something like that. Um, week in and week out, you see her in the back end. She's of a grinder. She's a, she's a yeah. she's a warrior, and that's why she's such a great player if if osaka wants to be that or be better than that she's gonna have to learn to emulate halep and that's and i'll be honest i think that that's possible for her sure i I think that she's the type of person that has those kind of mindsets i I think that that's possible but again she's 21 she's young we will see back-to-back grand slams for the first time other than serena in a long time um so we'll we'll just basically go from there and then for kvitova going forward Obviously, I feel like Petra probably feels this is a match that she could have definitely had uh, for herself. I think that that would have been like a crowning achievement in her mind getting back. But I think that she's going to take it in stride and say, you know what? This was a, this was a, a tough loss. You know, I, I played really well. Um, you know, Mike, you and I had talked and she basically said, you know, after the match, um, you know, in her speech that she feels she won two years ago when she survived her attack that she had. Um, that left her with the possibility of never playing tennis again to be back into a Grand Slam final, I think, is is a huge achievement for her at that point. And obviously, everyone's going to look at it as an extremely feel-good story, which it is. Um, but I, I agree in the discussion we had as well. I think that she continues to work hard. Obviously, she shouldn't look at this as a, as a negative. She played very well. But I think at this point, obviously, she is clearly, other than Serena, the favorite at Wimbledon still. Um, with her two titles coming at Wimbledon, I think that she wins, uh, has a good chance at Wimbledon to 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 go on and win at Wimbledon this year and have a successful season. 
Um, you guys' thoughts on Kvitova going forward? Uh, obviously, I think we're all probably thinking that way, but. I agree. No, I agree. I mean, take the positives out of it, especially knowing, to be honest, she should have lost. It's one of those like playing with house money things. So what what, what would have been at 99.9% chance, what would have been not a bad thing, but she would have lost to Serena, now makes it to the final. Um, that's a lot of... Uh, that's a lot of uh, it's a big turnaround all all because of one little thing so i think um she feels good about it i think she knows that you know that was wasn't probably supposed to happen she wasn't supposed to beat serena but at the end of the day you roll with it and uh she's going to use it and yeah she played you know pretty well so i think you're right about wimbledon that uh you know as of right now who else is going to be a threat besides serena yeah, maybe. Mike, any thoughts me. on that? Uh, uh, yeah, look, I think Kvitova knows her best Her best uh, shot is Wimbledon. That is her best surface. She's why she's a two-time Wimbledon champion. And, you know, she's also in the, the back end of her career at this point. I think uh, Kvitova is, what, 31 right now? 31 or Somewhere 32. around there. I know she's she's at least 30. So, you know, she's kind of hitting her the back end of her career. And if she's got to pick one place where she knows she can have a really good chance of winning, the best chance, really, it's going to be Wimbledon. So I think she takes this loss in stride. I think she says, hey. Uh, we, a- we are wrong. She is 28. We'll oh, turn she's- 29 in March. Really? Huh. For some reason, I thought yes. she was over 30. Sorry, Petra. Um <laughs> anyway, um, I'll roll with Sincere that. Sincere apologies. So, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, though, it's I'm still saying it's her best surface, and so um, she's going to roll with this. She's going to just see it, you know, obviously as a disappointment, but also a very big um, positive, and she's going to roll hopefully into sure. Wimbledon healthy and ready to, you know, go after that third title. All right, gentlemen. I think that pretty much wraps it up. Mike, uh, any last thoughts? I just think it's a, you know it was a great Australian Open. I mean, it may not be the result that Eric and I would have liked, but it's still a great result. Hey, and at least I was right. And you were right, Eric. Great job. Uh, not exactly a hard uh, uh, one to pick there, though. Um, but uh, you can't say you expected it, Djokovic, to play Nadal and win. Like no. maybe Nadal, maybe Djokovic, the winner. But I don't think there were many people thinking after Nadal was coming back from injury and that that he was going to make the final so easily. So yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm good. simply proud of the fact that even though I didn't want to pick it, I picked Sitsi to beat Federer and was right. Ah, yeah. As hard true. as that is for me to say. Yeah. Yep, I that's saw about it as coming, bad as, yeah, that's and about as, I was just disappointed that Sitsi Pass did not show up against Nadal because I had him beating Nadal as well. Yeah, that's where you went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for this episode, everyone. Thanks for listening, and if you'd like to send in feedback, do so. Oh, by oh, wait, sorry, we forgot. We forgot that the mixed doubles. Um, oh Krajikova, yeah, really quickly, Eric. You said Kraj- you were going to bring that up. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Krajikova and uh, Rajiv Ram. Um, beat uh, over Sharma and Smith, which I think were the Sharma and Smith were the Australian set, weren't they? I can't remember. But um, yeah, number three seeds Barbara Krajikova and Rajiv Ram. Um, they is yes, the first they were. Title they were, the and they were wild cards, by the way, Eric Sharma and Smith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Defeated wild cards making a slam final. That's impressive. Yes. Yes. And uh, and uh, Krajikova 
um, is one half of the number one women's doubles team with uh, Sinyakova. So this is uh, her third Grand Slam trophy because they have uh, they're the reigning Roland Garris and Wimbledon doubles champions. So with her partner. So cool. yeah, that was cool. Great. Uh, all right. So if you guys like to send in some feedback, uh, you can do so by sending it to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. And if you send it in, we will have it in the next episode. All right. Uh, we'll see you guys in the next one. And until then, uh, keep watching tennis and keep loving tennis and send in more feedback when you can. Thanks. Bye. See you. Run later. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Addict Podcast by Freaking Geeks Media. Be sure to visit freakinggeeks.com as well as our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash freakinggeeks for more great content. Also, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really helps. If you would like to write into the podcast and share your thoughts and ask questions, you can do so by sending your email to tennisaddictpodcast at gmail.com. You can contact Michael on Twitter using at Michael underscore Lanik or at FreakGeeks. Intro music for this episode is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Outro music is Nowhere Land by Kevin McLeod, which can be found at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can also find the attribution in the episode description as well.